0: So what we do here at RUF is we gather together to sing the truth, to get the truth into our hearts, and then to hear from God's word. And we generally will go through books of the Bible. We don't just kind of pick and choose different things. um, But we really want to hear from God in the way he has delivered his word. Um, We are going to go this semester in the book of Hebrews, which is actually a letter. It's actually even more particularly probably a sermon that was turned into a letter. There's a lot of places as you go through this letter where he'll talk about hearing and and just sort of sermon-ness kind of words. But I think it's important for me just to say a brief word about why we're going to do the book of Hebrews this semester, I think a lot of people, at least when I was your age, I hadn't really read uh, the letter to the Hebrews. There's some stuff in there that's a little hard to understand. Even that song that we just sang uh, about having a high priest, you know, isn't talked about in a lot of the New Testament, but it's talked about a lot in the book of Hebrews. So one of the things Hebrews does is it kind of fleshes out new dimensions of understanding who Jesus is, and what he did. That's always good. Not only that, but really the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than. He's better than all the other things that are rivals for his glory and for his throne. Or you could put it this way, he is more beautiful and believable than all the other things that vie for your heart's affection. You see, the book of Hebrews is a a book about intimacy. It's a book about how God did more than just allow us to have a relationship with Him through what Jesus did, but God actually is thrilled to marry Himself to His people. And Hebrews really digs into the glories of what does it mean that we actually get in, that we actually get access to a relationship with God. I think so many people that grow up in Christian churches, even good Bible-believing churches, pick up the idea, or maybe this, this is something explicitly told to them, usually it's more implicit, that God created us to be his little worker bees. And if we're honest, we don't feel like we're doing a very good job with that. That's why we need to sing all the hymns about the gospel. The good news is that Jesus loves us, not because of how well we serve him or how well we lived the life that he's given us. And Hebrews talks about that. As a matter of fact, we're going to get into that in this very first chapter. So we need to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable, and Hebrews is a wonderful book for that. But we also need to remember that following Jesus is hard. Now, some of you have been following Jesus a long time, And maybe you're beginning to understand that. Some of you are probably here like wanting to check out what Christianity is all about. That's awesome. We're glad you're here. I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to pretend that everything in your life will be better if you have a relationship with God. In fact, some things might become way more difficult. That's just reality. And the book of Hebrews, I think, helps us remember that reality because this is a letter that was written to Christians from a Jewish background who have become Christians, who live in Rome, most likely a pretty small group. We know from later in the letter that already persecution has, beginning, has begun. The letter writer says, you have already suffered the confiscation of your property, But you've not yet, emphasis on yet, suffered to the point of shedding blood. But it's coming. And they are tempted to go back to being regarded as merely Jewish. Now, living after the Holocaust and whatnot, we do, it's kind of bizarre to think that being Jewish would be a safe place. But in the first century, the Romans, they were not they were not very kindly disposed to other religions. Unless you also worshipped Caesar. Okay? Lord Caesar. But the Jews were granted a special privilege. They were a tolerated religion. And in the early days of Christianity, Christians were understood by the Romans to be a kind of Jew. They were understood to be kind of a, a, a little offshoot of Judaism. And so they should be covered under that tolerance. But as the book of Hebrews is written, the Romans have realized, hey, they're not the same thing. As a matter of fact, the Jews and the Christians often battle with each other and fight with each other. You read about this in the book of Acts. And as the Romans begin to understand that, the Romans' protection or tolerance of Christians is disappearing. And so for these Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, they are tempted to go back. So there is a lot of stuff in this letter about the difficulty. And what is God doing in the midst of this difficulty? And what has Jesus done? And what does it mean to follow a crucified God? Later in the letter, for instance, it says that Jesus was crucified outside the city gate in a place of shame and dishonor, literally a trash heap. Golgotha is a trashy outside Jerusalem, outside the city gates. And the writer of Hebrews says, if we want to follow him, if we want to be with him, we need to go to him out there. You can't be cool and popular and truly follow Jesus, at least in certain ways at certain times. Now, I don't think we're yet at the point where you're going to suffer to the point of shedding blood. But I don't know. I'm 58 years old. I don't know how many more years I have, but you guys are just beginning. And so it's important that you understand God has this book in the Bible for a reason. And he wants those who are going to follow him to understand what is at stake. So that's why we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1. Now, this is actually one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's actually the, if anybody ever asks me, what is RUF all about? It stands for Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, we've got a little paper in the other room that gives you a little sense of what that's about. I can talk to you for a cup of coffee. I've got a little sign-up list up here if you want to get a cup of coffee over at Bongo or uh, in the Jack somewhere and, and just chat about anything you want, about things you're hearing in some of your religion classes, whatever. We can do that. We can talk about that. Love to do it. But if somebody, you know, says, "What is our Yoke about?" We say, "Well, we're really about what Hebrews chapter one is about, and and it's these three things: God has spoken, and He has not stuttered. But God has done more than speak. God has sent His Son, who made purification for sins, and then sat down because the work was finished. So God has spoken." Christ has done his work and sat down. And then the rest of chapter 1, as I'm going to read here right now, teaches us how to use that to battle against all the other things that seem more beautiful, more faithful, more reliable. You're going to learn how to actually use the Bible to trash talk our idols. Because that's the end of chapter 1. So, follow me. I'm going to read chapter 1 of Hebrews. Now, I am reading from the New International Version. I know a lot of you guys probably use the ESV. Um, they're, they're all fine translations. I just like the NIV, particularly for chapter 1. So if you're, you know, got a phone Bible, you might follow along. If you have the passage the way we passed it out, it is the version I'm reading. Here's Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets... At many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And the name, as you're going to see here as we go on, is the name Son. Son is always superior to being a servant. And the angels are servants. For the which of the angels... And now he starts quoting the Old Testament against the idea... Here's what you need to understand. There was in certain uh, parts of Judaism... Uh, worshiping of angels. Particularly in the first century. And that's some of the backdrop here. And if you had to think of somebody or something that was pretty powerful and awesome, it would be angels. You know, angels on TV always come to people and they say, they're there, it's going to be okay. You you know, when angels in the Bible show up, they say, fear not. (laughs) Because they're frightening. Alright? But, the writer of Hebrews says, As awesome as angels are, they're nothing compared to the Son. And he's going to use the Old Testament here to prove it. Look what he does here, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, you are my son. Today I have become your father. He never said that to an angel. Or again, again a quote from the Old Testament. I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings His firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. And speaking of the angels, though, He says, He makes His angels spirits and His servants flames of fire. See, angels are servants. But about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That's what God says about the Son. And He also says, it's not. there's more... He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will all perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. that's all stuff that he says about the sun. But to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He never said that to the angels. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So he goes quite a lot hammering away at that, isn't he? About the importance of understanding the superiority of Jesus to the thing that seems the most awesome and breathtaking that you can imagine. Which are these angels, right? So you get a little sense of it. Let's pray and then we're going to dig into this. Passage a little bit. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you. We right pray now that you send your spirit to help us not only to understand but to worship you, to trust you, to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable, to be convinced by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, here's, here's what our about. Here's what Hebrews 1 is about. okay? God has spoken. Christ has sat down, and we need to learn how to use those truths to do battle against our fear and our unbelief and all the other things that vie for our worship and our attention. So God spoke. Now, the fact that God speaks is axiomatic, basic to Christianity. It's absolutely a starting point. Now, I know that not everybody believes that not even everybody that says they're a Christian believes that but it's hard to take the Bible seriously and not see that that's what it is claiming right now I think we should be amazed that God spoke and that he continues to speak you know Genesis chapter 3 Genesis chapter 2 and 3 when sin comes into the world that should have been the end of the story should be the end of the story. The fact that there's a Genesis chapter four is amazing, and then after Genesis chapter four, again the story should have ended. Cain and Abel that didn't turn out so well. Then there's Genesis chapter five, and again, chapter six, chapter seven. It goes on and on. Every single chapter of the Bible has plenty of reason why God should have said, "I'm done. I'm done. I keep, I keep speaking to these people, and they keep." Not listening to me, and you see that here in verse one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now that there's a lot in there because if you actually look at the Old Testament, you find that most of the times he had to speak through various prophets and in various ways because the people weren't listening. Very rarely do they actually listen. And you know what? He keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe you've heard of this word, the covenant. The covenant is a word that refers to a particular kind of relationship. It's not a contract where two people kind of negotiate, you do this and I'll do this, and then we kind of decide, okay, let's shake off. Now, a covenant is a particular kind of relationship where one is the sovereign Lord, whether it's a king to a vassal or whether it's the Lord God to his people. There is one who sets the terms and says, here's what I will do and here's what you are to do. That's the covenant. okay? and God has been saying from the very beginning, I am going to marry myself to my people. No matter what happens, whether other people try to wipe them off the face of the earth, or whether through their own sin and unbelief they try my patience, nonetheless, I am going to marry myself to my people. Even if it takes the death of my only begotten son. That's the message that God has been saying over and over and over again. And that's why, you see, in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, it culminates in Christ. Now, as I said, speaking, God speaking, is absolutely axiomatic to the Bible and to the big picture story. It all began with a word, if you remember. Let it be. And it was. And everything fell apart when mankind refused to listen to a word, God said, do not eat of this tree. And they didn't listen. And then God pursues mankind as they're hiding. He says, where are you? With question and a promise, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And again, this shouldn't surprise us if we understand that God has created us to be in a relationship with him not just to be his little worker bees. If all he wanted was for us to be his little worker bees, he could have just sent down an instruction manual. As a matter of fact, some people think that's all the Bible is. But if you think the Bible is just a list of rules, you've really missed the point. Because the Bible, like every book, but in particular, the Bible is a book that's designed to bring you into a relationship with the author. It is, Right? relationships require communication. And and God created us to be his cherished people that he loves and shares his life and his kingdom with. Now, there was a a few years ago, I was on a panel um, with a professor, and we were talking about various views of the Bible. You have to know that there are a lot of views of what the Bible is out there. And the question was asked, by the person running the panel. What do you think about words like inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration? And I said, well, I'm happy to recognize that those are not words that are in the Bible, okay? Infallible, inerrant, those are not in the Bible. But I believe those concepts, or concepts are there, and I can show you where. When the Bible says that God's word is refined seven times seven, like purer than gold without dross, that's trying to say it's without error. That's what it's saying. That's what it means. Don't get hung up on whether the word inherent is there. Infallible means it's a safe guide that you can trust. And the way the Bible says that is the, the word is a lamp unto our feet. It guides us surely and safely, okay? And, and, and so I said, I, I'm happy to recognize those words are in the Bible, but the concepts are there. And, and then as it the, went down the panel, we got to the professor, and he said this, I believe the Bible is a record of what humans have thought as we've evolved this being that we call God. Now, surely you have to see there's a big difference there, right? Now, that doesn't settle the issue. I want you to recognize that there's a difference because what that person was saying was denying the very concept of revelation. The Bible was generated by human beings. The Bible doesn't teach that. Now, you can Reject it, but in our UF we believe that the Bible is God's word. That doesn't mean that we can't talk about it, right? But but that's where we're coming from. I want you to understand that. And and you might think, well, that you know, I I've heard one time a friend of mine was um was talking to somebody. who was like, I just can't abide by this idea that the Bible is true because if the Bible is true, then that really ends any kind of dialogue or conversation we can have with it. Like, it's like talking to somebody who's always right. Like, who wants to be in a relationship with that person? I was like, okay, that's interesting. But then, what my friend said, but here's what you need to understand. If you reject what you don't like in the Bible and accept what you do like, you may think you're having a dialogue with God. You're really just talking to yourself and using the Bible to do it. I, you know, I don't want to be unfair, but these questions matter. Has God spoken? The Bible clearly claims to be God's Word. Right? And I think there are good reasons to believe it, but I will tell you ultimately, I believe that because God's Holy Spirit has convinced me of those good proofs. So I'm not saying that you're stupid if you don't agree. Right? I'm not even saying that you shouldn't explore these things and raise questions. We want this, or you have to be a safe place where you can do that. But you need to understand God has spoken and he's not stuttered, and that matters, right? Now, as I said, when you understand that the message of the Bible is the same over and over and over again, you realize that actually all the little stories are part of one big story, and that's really important, because a lot of people I think get raised in Christian churches, they don't really know what to make of the Old Testament. They're like, ah, I don't know about all that weird stuff, and But when you understand that it's one big story, it really helps. And I know a lot of you have probably taken Old Testament this fall. So I always love to either do something on the Old Testament in the fall or the book of Hebrews, which helps give us a framework to understand it. But also, in the freshman girls' small group, they're doing what? The Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a book uh, written by this lady, Sally Lloyd-Jones. Here's what she says in the introduction to that book. I think this is really helpful. She says, the Bible isn't a book of rules. Or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far off country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. We believe that. And we believe that the book of Hebrews actually gives us a vantage point to see things that maybe you've never understood before. So, God has spoken. Of course, the question is, are we listening? (laughs) Right? And I, again, I want you to understand, God doesn't speak because he dislikes bossing people around. It's because he wants to have a relationship with his people that's deep, that's intimate. What else do we see in this text? Well, we see that Jesus did more than speak, he sat down. He sat down. And what does that mean? That means that Jesus is not just a good teacher, his teaching is actually not what makes Christianity unique or important. Now, every religion has events and teaching. And in every other religion, really, the events are very secondary. The key is the teaching. And some people have said that Christianity is really about that kernel of teaching, the golden rule. That's not what makes Christianity unique. What makes Christianity unique is what Jesus did. And you see that right here, right from the beginning. The book of Hebrews unashamedly says, God has spoken, and Jesus, after he made purification for sins, sat down. If that's not true, then the rest of this book is pointless. That's the starting point. That's the starting point, right? In Christianity, the events are paramount. And the teaching explains the events. Why is what Jesus did so important? Well, the point of him sitting down is that he finished the work. He sat down because he finished the work of dying in the place of real sinners. And the tense here is important. It's finished. And he sat down in the past, right? So what that means is, when you come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness, and God gives it to you, when you come to trust the work of Christ instead of your own work, as this great uh, hymn writer, Horatius Bonar, I know it's a funny name, but he's a great hymn writer. He said this, upon a life I did not live... Upon a death I did not die, I staked my whole eternity. That's the heart of this, okay? Now that is absolutely vital to know when we're suffering, and it's one of the reasons that the writer of Hebrews begins this way. Because pretty quickly he's going to go into showing why this matters in the midst of suffering. Because it's absolutely vital that you, if you're a Christian, that you understand that God's smile has been secured by what Jesus did, not by what you've done or how well you serve him or even how well you get through suffering. Because nobody gets through it well enough to earn the smile of God. And the last thing you need is suffering and then in addition to the suffering, a feeling of shame like you haven't done very well with the suffering, right? So when you don't understand that Jesus finished the work, of providing purification for sins. It makes every trial a double trial. Do you understand? So understanding that Jesus sat down and finished the work changes the way you go through trials. If you don't understand it and believe it, then you're always wondering, did I do something to deserve this? Or did God not give me what I deserved? You're either going to blame yourself or you're going to blame God. What Hebrews says is that God disciplines those he loves as sons and daughters. We're going to talk about that because come up. All right? It's also vital to know this that Jesus sat down, finished the work of making purification of sins. There's no more left for you to do to add to that. It's vital to know that for a living. How many of you have ever heard this hymn, Rock of Ages? Have you ever heard that? It had a funny name originally. They probably, he probably, Augustus Top Lady, but with a name like Augustus Top Lady, maybe, you know, he wasn't really good with snort, you know, short, snappy titles. Um, he never called it Rock of Ages. He called it a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. Which is a mouthful. A living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. But understand what it's saying. The truth you need to live and to die is nothing In my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim, right? That what you need is, could my zeal, no respite, no. That means even if you could be fired up for Jesus all the time, could my zeal, no rest or no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? Even if you could weep over your failures and the ways that you've not served or honored God the way you probably should, even if you could do that, all for sin could not atone. So listen, I hope that you will be set free from feeling like you need to be fired up for Jesus for Jesus to love you and that you need to weep over your sin the way it deserves for Jesus to love you. No. But both of those things should happen when you realize that Jesus did everything. Does that make sense? Now, last point I want to say here and then, we, then we'll talk about the trash talk. You can't lose the connection between these two things, the speaking and the sitting down. If you lose one of these, you lose Christianity. And I'm afraid a lot of people are raised in contexts where one is emphasized more than the other. But in RUF, we're always going to be emphasizing that God has spoken and Jesus has died on the cross, right? If you only believe that God speaks, and this is a lot, of, a lot of people raised in evangelical churches are convinced that the Bible is God's word, but they're a little unsure about how God can still love them after the disappointing ways that they've lived as Christians. Uh, it's easier to believe that we can be forgiven for the things before we knew better, but after we've become a Christian, shouldn't we live for God and look at how we've lived? We're awful. And so Christians just live with all of this guilt and bondage. In other words, even the longer they go to church and the more they read the Bible, the more they continually hear all the things they're supposed to do that they're not doing. That's what happens if you hear and are convinced God's speaking, but you're not fully convinced that Jesus did everything, finished the work, and then sat down. Right? But, on the other hand, I think there are those who would say, well, I know Jesus died, I know Jesus lost me, it doesn't really matter what God says, what we might call cheap grace, but it really is, is this, it really is like taking the, the heart out of what it means to have a relationship with God. Can you imagine being in a serious relationship with somebody, talking like a dating relationship, or even a marriage relationship, where the other person says, really, I have, I have, no, I have no opinion about how you live your life. Like, you just do whatever you want. You know, the most insecure students I've ever met tend to be the ones whose parents never had any limits for them. Indifference is not love. Tolerance is a satanic counterfeit of love. Love, love, true love, stands in the way when people are going to destroy themselves. And that's where we go in the rest of this passage. If you're going to worship angels as impressive as they seem, if you're going to worship your reputation and put all your hopes in that, or your talent, or your beauty, or your grades, or your money, whatever it is, anything that you think is more reliable and controllable, because that's what the Bible calls idols. They're these God substitutes that seem more reliable and controllable because God sometimes seems so ethereal and he certainly doesn't operate on our timetable as much as we wish he would. And therefore, I'd rather have like my bases covered and make sure that I can get what I want in some other way. The Bible calls that idolatry. And, and idolatry isn't just something that upsets God. It breaks his heart. That's why the Bible calls it Adultery. Because he's married himself to his people. And we keep running after all these other things that we think are more faithful. And he comes and he says, let me speak truth to you. Now, angels are probably not what you're worshipping. But what I want you to do is say, look at how the writer of Hebrews teaches us to take the truth about who Jesus is and about what he's done and use it to do battle against the things that seem more impressive and more reliable than Jesus, and also use it to do battle against your fear and your unbelief. And that's what he does here, right? That's what he shows us how to do. What do we find more awesome than Jesus, more reliable, more faithful? The writer of Hebrews says, let me remind you of what God has said, and it's important Listen, it's one thing to believe in God's grace. Who wouldn't want to believe in God's grace? It's another thing to believe in God's grace because you're convinced because the Bible teaches it. Believing in God's grace will work fine until you really, you really wonder whether, whether what you're experiencing is God's grace. And then the Bible convinces you, it changes everything. And so that's what he says. God never said to your idols, to which of your idols, to your ability to impress other people or to secure what you want, to which of them did God say, your rule makes everything right? (laughs) You know, you can be counted on. Oh, sit down until I make all your enemies sit at your feet. No, he's never said that. He's only said that to one Jesus himself. We need to learn how to use scripture to trash talk our idols, and we need each other, frankly, to stand in the way sometimes and speak life-giving words. Now, we're going to close with a hymn that I'm sure, probably one you've never heard. And, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons that we sing some of these old hymns is because these are the truths that we need. We need to hear regularly who God is and what he's done and what he thinks about us. So this is an old hymn, Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? And it really is a hymn about seeing Jesus as more beautiful and believable. It says this, what can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth, not a sense of right or duty. Your heart can't change just because you think that you need to do better. It's only when you see Jesus is more beautiful that your heart begins to change. Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. And then look at this. Tis that look that melted Peter. Remember after Peter denied Jesus three times? And then it says in Mark's Gospel that Jesus caught his eye and he went and he wept bitterly. It was broken. But it was a look of love. Tis that look that melted Peter. Tis that face that Stephen saw, even as he was being stoned, which is basically a judgment upon him that you're committing blasphemy, and he gets a vision in the book of Acts that Jesus is standing. See, here in Hebrews, he's sitting. In the book of Acts, the only place where Jesus is standing. Why? Because that's what defense attorneys do. Even while the earthly court is pronouncing death for blasphemy, Jesus rises his defense, and Jesus never takes a case unless he knows he can win. And he pleads his blood, as we just sang, right? Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. That's why we're going to study the book of Hebrews, to have our eyes open to see Jesus is more beautiful and believable. Let me pray as the worship team comes forward to sing this last hymn.